Welcome to the New Hope Sermon of the Week. We hope you are encouraged by this message by our special guest speaker. How many of you guys like, like, um, well, I guess I can't ask this in church because you guys would think I'm carnal, but do you like fighting movies, war movies, movies with bloodshed? Is that cool? Yeah. Did you know that Hollywood did not invent those movies, but the word of God was the first pieces of literature that actually explained what's happening in modern day Hollywood movies? Amen. All right, let's go to the scriptures. Let's look at 1 Kings chapter 1. If you didn't do your Bible reading this morning, we're going to be reading a lot of scripture this morning. We're going to be reading about 34 verses. I know it's a lot, but I want to give you the full backdrop of what's happening in the text. And then once I finish reading, we're going to look at the word and hopefully we're going to make this practical for you guys today. So if you're taking notes, the title of this word is called the building of a son. Everyone say son. When the word of God talks about sons, it's not all inclusive to males, but the word of God says in Galatians chapter three, that there is neither uh, male or female. There's neither slave nor free, but we are all one in Christ. So when I say the building of a son, I'm talking about females too. Amen. First Kings chapter one, I'm going to be reading out of the, the new living translation. This is And I'm not being a political this morning. If you think I am, I'm not. But this is what's happening in the nation of uh, Israel when there's a transition of leadership. And there's kind of a coup in this chapter. And we read about an illegitimate king. And then we read about a legitimate king. So there's kind of like a game of thrones happening in this chapter. So 1 Kings chapter 1 says this. When David was very old... He could not keep warm even when they put covers over him. So his attendant said to him, let us look for a young virgin to serve the king and take care of him. She can lie beside him so that our king, our Lord, the king may keep warm. Then they searched throughout Israel for a beautiful young woman and found Abishag. Say Abishag. Come on, I want you to be interactive with you this morning. I, want, I don't want this to be a monologue. Say Abishag. Say key player one. Come on, I don't want like five people. Say key player one. All right, come on. Key player one. Then Abishag, a Shudamite, and they brought her to the king. The woman was very beautiful. She took care of the king and waited on him. But the king had no sexual relations with her. You know what that shows me about David's latter years? that David conquered some things in his life. See, if you read about the story of David, David had some issues. How many of you guys know that leaders also have issues? There are no perfect leaders. There are no perfect presidents. There's no perfect kings. But David had conquered some things later in his life. David's cold. He's tired. He's about 70 years old. This is right when he's about to die. So they need to keep him warm. So they bring in a young Shunammite. Some scholars believe this is who Solomon was writing about in the Song of Psalms. So they bring in this Shunammite to take care of the king. Now verse 6. Verse 5, I'm sorry. Now Adoniah, whose mother was Haggith, put himself forward and said, I will be king. So he got chariots and horses ready with 50 men to run ahead of him. His father had never rebuked him or disciplined him by asking, why do you behave as you do? He was also very handsome and was born next after Absalom. 
Adoniah conferred with Joab, son of Zariah, with Abathar the priest, and they gave them their support. But Zadok, everyone say Zadok. Come on. Say key player two. But Zadok the priest. Say Benaniah. Say key player three. And say Nathan. Say key player four. Nathan the prophet, Shammai and Ray and David's special guard did not join Adoniah. Adoniah then sacrificed sheep, cattle, and fattened calves at the stone of Zoheleth near Enrogel. He invited all of his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet or Benaniah or the special guard or his brother Solomon. Then Nathan asked Bathsheba, my favorite. Say Bathsheba. Bathsheba. Say key player number five. Then Nathan asked Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, have you not heard that Adoniah, the son of Haggith, has become king and our Lord David knows nothing about it? Now then, let me advise you how you can save your own life in the life of your son Solomon. Go into King David and say to him, my Lord, the king, did you not swear to me, your servant? Surely Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne. Why then has Adoniah become king? Verse 14, while you are still there talking to the king, I will come in and add my word to what you have said. So Bathsheba went in to see the aged king in his room where Abishag the Shunammite was attending him. Bathsheba bowed down, prostrating herself before the king, and the king asked, what is it that you want? She said to him, my lord, you yourself swore to me, your servant by the Lord your God, Solomon your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne. But now Adoniah has become king, and you, my lord the king, do not know about it. Verse 19, he has sacrificed great numbers of cattle, fattened calves and sheep, and has invited all the king's sons. Abiathar the priest and Joab the commander of the army, but he has not invited Solomon your servant. My lord the king, the eyes of all of Israel are on you to learn from you who will sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise, as soon as my lord the king is laid to rest with his ancestors, I and my son Solomon will be treated as criminals. While she was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet arised, and the king was told, Nathan the prophet is here. So he went before the king and bound with his face to the ground. Nathan said, have you, my lord the king, declared that Adonijah shall be king after you and that he will sit on your throne? Today he has gone down and sacrificed great numbers of cattle, fattened calf and sheep. He has invited all the king's sons, the commanders of the army, and Abiathar the priest. Right now they are eating and drinking with him and saying, Long live King Adoniah. But me, your servant, Zadok the priest, Benaniah the son of Jehodiah, and your servant Solomon he did not invite. Is this something my lord the king has done without letting his servants know? who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Then King David said, Call in Bathsheba. So she came into the king's presence and stood before him. The king then took an oath, As surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble, I will surely carry out this very day what I swore to you by the Lord the God of Israel. Solomon, your son, shall be king after me. And he will sit on my throne in my place. Then Bathsheba bowed down with her face to the ground 
prostrating herself before the king and said, may my Lord King David live forever. Don't you wish wives would still do that today? Come on, my God. King David said, call in Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah the son of Jehodiah. When they came before the king, he said to them, take your Lord's servants with you and have Solomon, my son, mount my own mule and take him down to Gihon. There have Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel. Blow the trumpet and shout, long live King Solomon. Then you are about, then you are to go up with him and he is to come and sit on my throne and reign in my place. I have appointed him ruler over Israel and over all of Judah. Now, will you do this for me and just go, that's the way I feel right now. All right, so this is what's going on. King David is old. He's 70 years old, and there's a game of thrones happening. See, David's first two sons had been killed, Amnon and Absalom, right? So Adoniah comes on the scene. He's actually, at this point, the firstborn of Israel. You would think, and he would think, that the throne is his, So he comes and he takes Abiathar the priest. And you see, you have to know the historicity of the Bible to see why this is important. Abiathar was from the descent of Eli. Everyone say Eli. We can read about Eli in the first two chapters of Samuel. Eli was jacked up. Eli was not a good leader. Eli had two sons by the name of Hophni and Phinehas that did some crazy things in the tabernacle. Literally, they were committing sexual immorality in the tabernacle, and their father Eli said nothing. So Abiathar was from that bloodline. And there was a word from the Lord by the name of a spiritual son of Eli named Samuel that was the anointing person that anointed both King David and King Saul. And he said, Eli, your priesthood is going to be cursed. So this is the thing. Abiathar was loyal his whole life. And then when David gets old, something happens. Something happens and he switches loyalty and he begins to go after the wrong king. He aligns with Adoniah, right? So what's happening here is there's a tension in the nation of Israel. Have you guys felt the tension in the nation of America? I mean, come on. If you haven't felt the tension of what's happening here, then you've been living under a rock. And see, what's going on is they're anointing the wrong king. And see, what I find fascinating is Abiathar is a priest. He's anointing the wrong person, but God still allows him to operate in the ministry. And what I find it fascinating is this. This is what I've learned about God. That God is the only boss that will allow you to keep working after you've been fired. That's... When I read stuff like that, that's terrifying to me. To be, lo- to be toiling in your assignment and for there to be no power. I don't want to do that. I want the anointing to flow. I want the oil to be wet. I want to have a channel between God and me. And I want to be his mouthpiece. I want to be an oracle before God. But something happened in the life of Abiathar. He forgot loyalties or he just decided to follow the wrong king, and there's this tension in the land of Israel. And see, I love this author by the name of Malkin Gladwell. 
he wrote this book called The Outliers. Say Outliers. And essentially what this book's premise is about, the thesis of the book, is that you can never become great on your own. And this is what this word is about. As I read this text, and we read the key people in this text, you said key player one, key player two, key player three. We named five key players in this text. And see, Solomon could not have become king on his own. David could not have become king and stayed king on his own. And you can never become great on your own. God brings people around you to equip you and to give you the grace and the ability. Sometimes it's to tell you the truth. Sometimes it's to push you to do things that you don't want to do. But the premise of this chapter is this. You can't do great things on your own. That's why we have to have the church. That's why we have to come to the church. That's why scripture says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as some do. Listen, there's something that happens in this house when we're together. There's something that happens when we rub shoulders together. That's why the high priest didn't have to anoint the priest coming after him. He would just rub shoulders with his sons, meaning the oil that was on him transferred on the people that was around him. And then the power of God was felt on everybody that assembled. So what's happening here is there's a tension in the land. David is cold, he's tired, he's worn out. The Bible says that he could not build the temple because of bloodshed on his hands. David was restless. He didn't know when to put down the sword. He didn't know how to rest in the presence of God. That's where the root of his sexual sin came from because he didn't know how to be seated in the presence of the Lord. He learned later in his life, but in his younger years, he was a warrior. And see, in my life, as I'm getting older, God's teaching me to worship before I war. And then, so they bring in this young girl by the name of Abishag. She's a Shunammite. Put up here key player number one. All of us, we need a comforter. We need a comforter to come. See, what is a comforter for in our life? A comforter is when we've just blown it, we've just failed, we've just made the most miserable mistake in our life, and we need somebody to come and to give us words of life. And see, this is the thing. I believe this is where the church has failed. We come to the culture with condemnation and not comfort. And this is what, I, this is what I've learned about dealing with people in recovery, addiction recovery. I've, I've been involved in this type of ministry for 13 years. They don't need condemnation. They know they're in sin. They know they've done wrong. They know they've lost their children. They don't need a prophet to come and swing the sword of truth to cut their ears off. Talk to Peter about that. That's where he, Peter failed. If you fail in private devotion, you'll come out of the garden, cut the ear off of the servant you're called to heal. See, Jesus had the heart of God and he put the ear back on the servant. And see, people that are caught up in sin, they need comfort. When people are tired, they need comfort. When people are burnout in ministry, they need comfort. There is a particular season that we have to understand the assignment we're in. And see, some of you guys are comforters. 
Some of you guys have pastoral gifts on your life that you know how to apply the balm of healing. You know that you are the first person somebody calls after they failed. You're the first person somebody calls when they need a word of encouragement and a word of comfort. Like David, they might feel lifeless. They might feel cold. They might feel like their ministry is expired. They might feel spiritually bankrupt. And if you're the person that somebody calls because they need a comforting, affirming word from the Lord, you're the key player of comfort. We all need a comforter. We all need a comforter. But see, there's another gift, and there's another key player. Sometimes we need a prophet. Put up prophet. See, the prophet is what I like to call the truth teller. Everyone say truth teller. See, this is the thing. If you go to the wrong person in the right season, it'll destroy you. Sometimes is we need the prophet to come with the sword of truth to cut out the things in our life that don't need to be there. And see, we love the comforter, but sometimes the comforter turns into the enabler. So, listen, listen, listen. Sometimes we love the person that makes us feel warm and fuzzy when we're in a perpetual cycle of dysfunction. And see, we have to discern the season and the time. I, as a pastor, I've had to learn when to apply the bomb and then when to pull out the sword. And see, this is what I've learned, is the prophet doesn't have many friends. The truth teller doesn't have many friends because this is the person sometimes that you are gonna be wrongly accused of being judgmental. You're gonna be wrongly accused of being critical. The prophet, if you are the key player of the prophet, you are gonna be the last person that somebody calls when they're in sin. <laughs> Why? Because they know you're gonna tell them the truth. L listen, the key player, Nathan was the prophet in this narrative. Nathan was a bad dude. If you go back and read 2 Samuel, when after David has sexual relations with Bathsheba, covers it up, putting her husband Uriah on the front lines of the battle, Nathan comes a year later, tells this parable about a rich man and a poor man that had a sheep, and then David's so upset because he's so captivated by this story, then Nathan the prophet says, you're the man. This is what I've learned. Sometimes you don't wanna be the man. See, culture says you need to be the man. You need to be the man. You need to be the man. When you're in front of the prophet, you don't need to be the man. Did you know, listen, did you know that David could have, he could have pulled out his sword. You can read this later tonight, 2 Samuel chapter 12. And he could have cut Nathan's head off. But you have to have someone that is willing to wield the sword in your life to cut the sin and the dysfunction in your life. And that's at times that you don't want to hear it. You're like, well, I don't, I don't want that person in my, then you're, not, you're never going to reach enthronement. You're never going to reach promotion. See, there's five stages. There's death, there's burial, there's resurrection, there's ascension, and there's, there, there's enthronement. And see, what I've learned about church people is we want to reach the promise without going through the process. 
We, listen, we want to be promoted without humbling ourselves. It, listen, what it says about Jesus, it says, look, before he ascended, he descended. And then he took captivity captive. Listen, there is a way that seems right to men, and it's the path straight to the top. But if you want to know how God does it, he goes straight down to the bowels of Sheol because he understands before you ever taste resurrection, you're going to have to taste death. And that's where the prophet comes in. It's because the prophet is going to say, no, you got to die to some things. This has got to die, this has got to die, and this has got to die in your life. And this is the thing. A lot of times the prophet needs to learn to put the sword down, though. See, see, this is the thing. Don't get stuck in one mode. When I go through these five, you, one of these is going to speak to you. One of these, you're going to say, this is me. This is who I am. This is, I feel like this is the, the main assignment for my life. This is the main gift that God's put in me. But what happens is we get stuck in one mode. And then we use, use it as an excuse to be mean. Listen, I'm, I'm tired of hang, hanging out with mean prophets. <laughs> You, listen, you, you can, the Bible says speak the truth in love. You know what prophets love to do? They love to speak the truth without love. Sometimes we have to learn to put the sword down. What, well, if, if you're not with me, the sword is the truth that God puts in your mouth to cut sin out of somebody's life. But listen, what I've learned, you can do it redemptively. You can do it redemptively. And what happens, though, is the immature prophet, truth teller, truth teller will come on the scene, and he'll cut and cut and cut, thinking he's doing justice in the name of the kingdom, and then the person that needs to change is bleeding out, and then they die. And then they never walk in these doors of this church again because they've encountered a nasty prophet. We don't need any more nasty prophets in the kingdom of God. We need redemptive prophets. We need redemptive truth tellers. But we need people to rise up to call sin, sin. Come on. See, this, the, listen, the, the, listen, what, this is the thing. The, the grace of God has two sides. A.W. Towser said this. He says, the same cross that saves us is the same cross that slays us. And the grace of God has two sides. The grace of God is not just pardon, but it's power. A prophet comes on the scene and is like, yeah, you got to change, but you can change. Let me show you the greatness of what you're supposed to walk in. And this right here is holding you back. We got to get this mountain out of the way because I'm seeing into the horizon and you're seeing what's right in front of you. So we got Abishag. We got the comforter. We love the comforter. Love, love the comforter. They make us feel warm and fuzzy. We need that sometimes too. John chapter eight, the woman caught in the very act of adultery. What did Jesus say? He says, he who is without sin cast the first stone. What did he say to the woman? He says, neither do I condemn you, now go and sin no more. Sometimes I feel like the church preaches the reverse gospel. We say, don't sin anymore and we won't condemn you. Uh-oh, but Jesus said, he didn't say it like that. He said, neither do I condemn you. I'm, I'm giving you grace in this moment. I'm giving you pardon in this moment, but through the grace and pardon of the moment, I'm empowering you to never do it again. Come on. Three, this is my favorite. The kingmaker, I'm gonna say kingmaker. My, my kingmaker is smiling in the back. Men of God, you need a kingmaker in your life. Bathsheba was a kingmaker. Listen, Bathsheba gets a really bad rap. 
Bathsheba did not have a choice to sleep with King David or not. The Bible actually uses forceful Hebrew words. It says, and they took her and he slept with her. She didn't have a choice, but she was married to a king and then she birthed the king. You see, this is what I've learned about kingmakers. A kingmaker, the right wife in your life, is there to restrain the fool in you and to push you into kingship. Come on. Come on. To restrain the fool in you and to push you into kingship. And see, the right husband will do the same thing. He will restrain the fool in her to push her into enthronement. But see, we get mad. We think our wives are being nags. And they're telling us the same thing again and again and again. You know, they're restraining the fool in you. Listen, when I heard, listen, okay, watch, watch this. When a woman, when a wife first has a child and then the baby is coming out of her, what's the first thing the doctor says? He's crowning or she's crowning, right? A woman is meant to be a kingmaker by the hands of God. And the thing is, we can't get mad. And see, when I was, I, every, every message I preach, my wife hears like five times. I'm like, hey, what about this? What about this? And I, and I preach to her, I teach to her, she gets tired of it. And then at the end of this, I'm going through my, my five king players. And then she gets a little bit uncomfortable when I went over Abishag, you know, the encourager. And she says, you're not allowed to have an Abishag. You're not allowed to have woman to keep you warm at night. In fact, I'll be your prophet. I'll be your kingmaker. I'll be your encourager. Come on. The right person in your life will play all five roles. Come on. Y'all good? All right. You got, listen, you got to have a kingmaker. And if you, and if you, and Megan actually showed me this when we were reading the text together, like, the king, she's actually arranged this whole plan, if you read the chapter. She's like, you go in, I'll go in first, and you go in prophet. I mean, she's the shot caller. And see, what I've realized about a godly wife is behind every great man of God, there's a strong woman. She, listen, she might be in the background. This might not be her thing. I'm, I, I'm, I'm the speaker, I'm the communicator. But let me tell you something, the kingmaker will be back in the prayer closet making intercession Come on. The kingmaker. Everyone say kingmaker. So you got to have an encourager, you got, which is a comforter. You got to have a prophet. You got to have a kingmaker, but then you got to have a general. Guess who the general is? Benaniah. Come on. I, I love talking about Benaniah. I'm going to say Benaniah. Benaniah was a bad Dude, let's, let's put up 2 Samuel, that second scripture. I, I think it's verse 23, verse 20. I think I, I gave it to you. Did I give it to you? Awesome. Nope, that's not right. Hold on. I think I can. 2 Samuel 23, 20. That's 1 Samuel. I was right. <laughs> 2 Samuel 23, 20. Benaniah was the son of Jehodiah, the son of a valiant man from Kezbah, who had done many deeds. He had killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. Listen to this. He also had gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. That's a bad dude right there. 
See, Benaniah was the head of King David's guard. He was, you could say Benaniah was David's number two. He was head of David's bodyguard. He was the general that went and he fought battles. And see, you have to have a number two if you're a king. You have to have a number two if you're a leader. You have to have a general that's going to fight your battles behind your back without you even knowing it. And see, this is what I've learned. There's kind of tension when you have a general because somebody might call you about your leader and you might be a general. If someone's always calling you to complain about your leader, you're either a Benaniah or you're a Judas. You're either someone that can give advice on how to relate to that leader on how to speak to that leader, because Ben and I, I think, knew David the best. He, besides David's wives, he had spent most of the time with David. But what's interesting about this text is that he had gone down and killed the lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. And see, we read over that, but I like to break apart the text. And see, what, what I know about lions is this, like a lion, I'm about 220 pounds. A lion can be about 500 pounds, okay? I can't run that fast. I mean, I think I'm faster than I am, but do you know how fast lions can run? 35 miles per hour. You're not outrunning a lion and you're not gonna outrun a lion in a pit. This is like UFC, like a like a pit, okay? Some scholars believe that this lion was actually in a cistern where there was water and Ben and I had to jump down into the cistern or this lion would literally pollute the water of the village. So he's having to take out a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. I won't say snowy. This is interesting because my, my, my spouse asked me to sometimes walk the dogs or take the dogs, go out to use the bathroom or even go get the groceries, right? And we, we had a really bad snow about three or four weeks ago and it was, you know, like four or five inches. And have you ever tried to walk on the snow in sandals? Like, it, 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 it doesn't work. They didn't have Air Maxes or boots back then. I'm wearing boots. Benaniah killed a lion that was probably three times as big as him in an enclosed space on a snowy day. He killed the worst of enemies in the worst of places in the worst of conditions. Do you see how you need a Benaniah? You need somebody that's gonna have your back. Listen, this is what I've learned about ministry, ready? Your best friend has a best friend that's not you. Hear that again. Your best friend has a best friend. That's not you. You need a Benaniah that once they hear some junk being talked about you, they're going to shut it down. And they're not going to put more gossip on that situation and cause it to get out of hand. And see, this is the thing. This, I'm, I'm just going to get on my little, I wish I had a little soapbox. I'd get on it. This is the thing. Sometimes we guise gossip as intercession in the church. Sometimes we guise gossip as intercession. We call people, hey, will you pray for my, you know, we, we got to pray for such and such a son. He's back on it again, you know. That's gossip. This is what I've learned. You know what a true prayer warrior does? goes to God before they go to anybody. They hit their knees before they hit the phone. Come on. 
And that's the thing. You need a Benaniah. If they, if they hear your name swirling around in anybody's mouth in a context that's not positive and redemptive, they're going to be your general, your right-hand man, and they're going to fight your battles behind your back when you don't even know about it. So you got a comforter. you got an encourager, somebody that's going to make you feel better when you're in dysfunction, somebody that's going to push you back into ministry when you feel worn out, when you feel tired. you got a prophet. You need a prophet, somebody that's going to tell you the truth, somebody that's going to help you get out of a lifestyle of sin that's destroying you, somebody that's not going to be afraid to use the sword of truth on you. You have to have a kingmaker. You have to have somebody that's going to restrain the fool in you and somebody that's going to push you into greatness. It's hard to put up with them, but you absolutely have to have it. You can't, remember, you can't do this on your own. And then you have to have a general. You have to have a Benaniah. You have to have somebody that's going to have your back when nobody's looking. And the last one, you have to have an intercessor, Zadok. Zadok is a Hebrew word for righteousness, Hezdek. It's actually the priesthood that we're under. We're not under, the, we're not under the priesthood of Levi. We're under the priesthood of Malik, King Hezdek, righteousness. And this is where the priesthood actually switched from Levi to Zadok or from Abiathar to Zadok. And see, prophets and intercessors anoint kings. This is why prophets outrank kings. This is why, watch this, this is why intercessors outrank kings because they know who God is going to use next. And see, the intercessor Zadok comes on the scene with the prophet Nathan and he anoints Solomon, the next king. And see, we, this is something that I've, I've had to learn to do. I'm a word guy. I like waking up, I like going to bed, I like spending time in the Word of God. I love the Word of God. The Word of God freed me of addiction, literally just being in the Bible, like devouring the Word of God. But this has been something that I've had to learn to do. This has been something, I'm talking intercession. I'm not talking about praying over your meal. I'm not talking about praying for 15 seconds before you go to bed. I'm talking about getting a prayer life because this is what I've learned about a prayer life. I call my prayer life private devotion. Watch this. Secret sin and private devotion cannot coexist. Secret, see, we, we don't, hallelujah. Secret sin and private devotion cannot coexist. One of those is going to die. Your sin is either going to be crucified in the presence of Jesus if you keep showing up, or you're going to stop showing up because every time you intercede, if you're an intercessor, you're getting in the presence of God, the Holy Ghost is going to come and touch that thing and saying, that needs to go. That needs to go. That's why intercessors have to be holy and pure because the presence of God won't allow them to hold on to that because when we hold on to things that don't belong in our life, our prayers, the Bible some says, become a strange incense to God. You know what that means? It stinks. You wanna know why? There's too much flesh caught up in what we're praying about. Intercession. Intercession is really not even about you. 
Intercession is about people that God has brought in your life. It's when literally God says, I'm giving you a prayer assignment. His name is Johnny, or I'm giving you a prayer assignment. His name is Corey. I'm giving you a prayer assignment. Her name is Victoria. And you literally, you bear the burden of their life. You bear the burden of your li- their life. And what happens is you want to know why most intercessors are grouchy. It's because they wear the burden too long. They have not learned to cast all of their cares upon him because he cares for us. You have to have an intercessor. So everyone stand up. Watch this. Everyone stand up. Come here. Stand up. So I was, I was praying over this word. Johnny, you can co- go ahead and come up here too, brother. I, I was praying over this word, and I was looking at my life. Everyone look at me. I was looking at my life, and I was like, God, who is my encourager, who, or who are my encouragers? Who is my prophet? I know who my Bathsheba is. I know who my Abishag is also. Who is my general? Got a couple of them in this house. And I was praying over this word, and the Lord corrected me. Watch this. Stay with me. You haven't heard anything else I've said. Look at me right now. The Lord said this. He said, you've been trying to find out who those people are to you. The question is, who are you to them? Who are you to them? You're, you're one of these. One of these is going to be the primary gift that you operate in. But you will also, because of what season you may be in, God might be molding you into a different key player. And you have to be ready for that. Encouragers are really good with the bomb, but they're scared of the sword. Truth tellers, prophets, are really good with the sword, but they're scared to encourage and get intimate and close with somebody else. We love interceding for ourselves, but it's hard interceding for someone that's hurt us. It's hard interceding for someone that's betrayed us. So what I think God wants to do in this house is he wants to take us higher. He's always trying to take us higher. He's trying to give us revelation not just of who the people are to us, but who are we? Who am I? Because the most important question in your life is obviously who is Jesus Christ? But second is, who are you to him? Thank you for joining us for the New Hope Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast or other resources, visit newhopeonline.com.